0: Welcome to Parenting Refreshed, an original podcast from UNICEF that explores the impact of the COVID pandemic on parents, caregivers, and children. From mental health, education and technology, to climate change, immunization, war, and the health issues of tomorrow. Each episode features experts in that field informing us about the latest information that science and experience has to offer. That is why UNICEF Parenting brings together some of the world's leading experts to share facts, helpful tips, and practical guidance. Information that parents can trust to help give their children the best start in life. Head to unicef.org forward slash parenting. Today, we're in the company of author Bassi Ikbi, who's going to be discussing how views on mental health have changed over the last few years, how to talk to your family about mental health, toxic stress, what is it, and how do you prevent it, and the importance of building connection with your children. So let's meet her.
1: My name is Basi Ikpe. I'm a New York Times best-selling author and mental health advocate. My book, I'm Telling the Truth But I'm Lying, tells a story of how I learned to live with and not struggle from bipolar disorder, anxiety, and depression. My book is a mirror for those who need to be seen and a window for those who need to see and understand others. I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder in 2004. And since then, it has been my life's work to be able to speak about mental health in ways that are open and honest. Talking
2: to Basi today is Dr. Lisa Damore. I'm Dr. Lisa Damore. I'm a clinical psychologist, and that means that I take care of people's mental health, and I specialize in caring for teenagers and also children. Which, of course, means that I specialize in caring for families and caregivers because they are such an essential part of the mental health of young people. So let's start by
0: looking at how attitudes to mental health have changed since the start of the pandemic.
1: So we're in this really weird time right now for the last couple of years.
2: How has mental health changed during the pandemic? Needless to say, the pandemic has been unbelievably hard on everyone's mental health. And thinking about this through the lens of children and adolescents and their growth, one of the huge challenges that young people have faced is that in addition to all of the struggles they've had to go through, school closures, not getting to see their friends, you're not, not getting to be connected to huge parts of their communities, they've also Weathered all of this in the context of being cared for by people who themselves are feeling overwhelmed or stressed by the pandemic. And one of the things that we know about what helps children through hard things is when the adults around them are able to be supportive and responsive and flexible and patient. And as you know, I'm a mom, you're a mom, you know, being a mom in the pandemic, being a parent trying to care for a child in the pandemic. The pandemic also really limited, or at least hamstrung at times, our own patience and our own ability to be flexible because it was so stressful for everybody. What's going on globally when it comes to mental health? We're seeing a few different things. One thing we're seeing, of course, is heightened anxiety, stress, depression in young people because they have been through so much. And unfortunately, but not surprisingly, the kids who were already in situations that were challenging going into the pandemic took on more stress. Were faced with more stress during the pandemic, and so all of the challenges of the pandemic were not distributed evenly by any means. You know, a lot of people said, um, "One storm, a lot of different boats." So that has happened. The other thing, though, that I've seen happen is a lot more anxiety about distress itself. You know, we've been through so much. Our kids have been through so much that I am aware that a lot of adults are anxious about their kid having any sense of worry or upset, that we don't want our kids to be in any emotional pain. And so I think it's really key then that we go back to this definition of mental health, that we remember mental health involves distress, that distress is part of life, and we don't need to worry that just because a child experiences some distress that we are looking at a mental health concern. The way we know there's a mental health concern is if the distress is not handled well, if the child is not able to find ways to handle uh, upsetting emotion in ways that cause you know, them to feel more relief and bring more comfort and do no harm. The only time we really need to worry is when your child, any child, is experiencing distress and then managing it in a way that does not bring relief or causes harm somehow. That's when there's a mental health concern. But distress is absolutely part of life. It was part of life before the pandemic, lots of it during the pandemic, and it is absolutely going to always be part of what it means to be human.
1: In my experience, my son, during the early parts of the pandemic, we have the kind of relationship where we're both talking to each other, not at each other. I took for granted that he was going to do great working from home because he knows how to get things. He gets himself up. He makes himself breakfast. Um, That makes it sound like I'm negligent. I'm not. (laughs) Um, But I really took for granted that he was going to thrive doing this. But he told me after a certain point when his grades started falling that uh, he feels like he sleeps at school. And it took a lot of work for me to understand that the ways in which I thought he would thrive, he wasn't. And I had to make sure that his soccer teams, cause soccer is his big thing. So making sure that he gets out there and he plays with his friends as soon as it was safe to do so.
2: It is so true. Absolutely, Bassi, that kids' lives became very narrow in the pandemic and the way your son described it of feeling like he was sleeping at school, that there wasn't the variety of coming home and then going back to school and then coming home again. That's a loss for kids. And so much of what helps kids to develop and thrive is being in a variety of contexts being with different adults, being with different kids. Um, I'm so glad that you were able to keep soccer going for your son because that means that he's outside. He's with a different group of kids. I presume there's a coach there, so there's another adult he's interacting with. So as we try to put the pandemic in our rearview mirror and think about what kids need now what they need is a variety of experience, spending time with a range of loving adults, spending time doing you know a range of different kinds of things. Development will flourish in that context. Kids will bend themselves towards that sort of exciting new opportunities. But there was a long period where they didn't get to do nearly as much stuff as we want to see kids doing in the name of growth and development.
1: What's your advice for parents who don't have that connection with their kids? And teaching them better ways to build those connections.
2: You know, staying connected to a child is the most powerful thing we can do as parents and guardians to help promote their mental health. And it's not always easy to do. There are things that can get in the way. Sometimes children are not big talkers. They're not always sharing what they're feeling. Or even kids who are very you know, comfortable talking about their feelings, if they turn into teenagers, which invariably they do, <laughs> they can then close down or become more private. I think that the key thing we want to remember as the adults in a kid's environment is that what kids appreciate the most is an adult without an agenda. The more time we can spend in the company of young people where we're not trying to give them advice or get them to do something or bring them along or make sure they've done something, the better. So, of course, some of that will come into raising kids. They do need to do things that we do not need to sometimes help them get those things done. But what helps us connect with kids and especially with teenagers when it can be harder is to make ourselves available to just watch the show that they're interested in or hear about whatever it is they want to talk about without some plan to try to sneak in a lesson or um, be available in a quiet way so that if they do want to talk, we're right there and you know have time and are clearly accessible to them. The most important thing I think we can provide our children, especially as they become teenagers, and it gets a little harder, is our agenda-less presence. That's what kids really love and need. I was laughing when you were saying that because I tend to uh,
1: over-parent emotionally in that asking, how are you doing, how are you feeling, are you okay, how are things right now? And I remember at some point my son saying, stop talking about my feelings.
2: It's true, and I was like, okay, it's true. Noted, <laughs> and it's you know, and there's so much value in talking about feelings, and there's also so much value in respecting that sometimes kids want privacy around that, or it, even if they're upset, talking about feelings may not be the thing they want to do that will help them feel better. It might be you know, rolling around on the floor with a dog or listening to music. That there's lots of ways to make a painful feeling ease up a little bit, and one of the things we can do as the adults in the presence of children is to really think about the wide range of ways that we can help comfort kids when they're upset. And sometimes it's by talking about what they're feeling. And sometimes it's just by giving them a hug or being available should they want to talk, but not necessarily trying to make it happen if they're not in the mood for it.
1: That's great advice. I think that's something that I can take away from this, which is just being present as opposed to always trying to like tinker with mental health or or behavior people ignored the signs, my early signs of like anxiety and depression. So I'm like overly cautious. Like, Mm. what's that? It's like, I'm just sad. (laughs) I'm allowed to be sad. Like, you're right. You're right. You're right. (laughs) And in five minutes I'll be better. Let it go. Right. I I lost a soccer game. I'll be fine. (laughs) What advice would you give to parents who want to talk to their children about mental health issues? What
2: can you help them understand? Obviously, mental health has become such a big and prominent topic in the wake of the pandemic, and largely this is a good thing, but we want to make sure we're talking about it accurately. So the thing I would want parents to know and guardians to know, and then to communicate to the young people in their care, is that mental health is not about feeling good. You're not mentally healthy because you feel good. Mental health is about two things. It's about having feelings that make sense in their context, and then Being able to manage those feelings effectively so there are things that will make children feel scared or sad or worried or upset and that is often evidence of mental health if a child is sad about a sad situation that's what we want to see that's not a sign that something is wrong with that child that's actually a sign that something's really right with that child the second part of it is what becomes of the sadness. What do they do with that sad feeling? Do they come talk to someone they love to get some relief for it? Do they cry in a way that brings some relief by expressing that emotion? Do they go listen to music that either gives them sort of a more upbeat feeling, do a way to, to counter it? I mean, there's any variety of healthy ways to manage that sadness. And that's what we want to see. It's not the absence of distress we're going for. We're looking for healthy ways to manage distress when it invariably shows up. I love that.
1: I, I, I've I never heard it put in those terms before. And that's something that I'm going to be thinking about for, for a while. Especially recently we've taken mental health awareness to mean that we're aware and then we fix it immediately as opposed to letting people sit in their feelings or, or just feel bad if they need to feel bad. Um, what do you feel about social media? How do you think that plays a part in how children, uh, are processing their emotions
2: these days. It's complicated, right? I mean, that's like an amazing thing. So sometimes a child who's upset may get on social media and use that as a happy distraction. You know, maybe they're upset about something that they can't really change or can't really fix. And it's a good strategy to hop on social media and goof around with one's friends or look at, you know, interesting pictures that, you know, pull their mind away from whatever they're upset about. That's a perfectly reasonable way to get some relief from a painful emotion. At other times, kids can get on social media and share what they're feeling and find relief. Other times I've seen kids get on social media and share what they're feeling and get into what we as psychologists would call a ruminative process, where you're talking and talking and talking about something in a way that doesn't provide relief, um, actually makes things feel worse over time. And this is a bit of a blunt way to say it, but we almost call it like picking at an emotional wound, you know, not letting things heal up. Mm. So as kids express, however they express emotion, whether it's on social media or to us or, you know, to their friends, we want to watch that line between expressing that provides relief, talking about feelings in a way that actually does, you know, as kids say, get my feelings out and give them some comfort. And. The line from that to spinning in something, you know, spinning one's wheels, uh, getting stuck in a rut. And any time we feel like a child is not getting relief from expressing, when it really feels like they're getting stuck in a rut, that's a great moment to say, you know, talking about this usually helps, but you're not feeling better. Let's do this. Why don't we go make ourselves useful? Or why don't we go for a walk in nature? Or why don't we, you know, have a family dance party see if that doesn't help you feel better. Your family sounds really fun. A dance party? (laughs) No, You know, I have teenage girls. They will not let me have a family dance party with them anymore. That kind of expired when they both, after age 10, I would say. Yeah, I have a teenage
1: boy, so there is absolutely no chance of any dance parties. We live in a culture now where people want to express their emotions and express their feelings. And there's a, a huge awareness about emotional and behavioral health. But- How do we allow other people to feel their own joy or feel what they feel without having to impose your own sort of understanding on that?
2: I love that question. The thing we want to remember about feelings is they're deeply subjective and they're deeply personal. That there's no real right feeling at any given time people are going to feel what they're going to feel. And our job as adults in the lives of children and also adults in the lives of other people is to really try to honor whatever it is somebody's feeling. And one of the rules we use in psychology that can be very helpful in terms of knowing when we would push back or when we would call something into question is we make a distinction between thinking and feeling and doing. Mm -hmm. So you can think and feel really anything you want and you actually can't even control often what you think and feel. So you might feel like really an angry thought at somebody or a very unpleasant thought towards somebody. That's okay, that's okay, that's gonna happen. Where we want to be very careful is in the line to doing, right? You can think something that is upsetting or harsh or difficult. You might have a feeling that's very unpleasant. What we want to watch is what do you do with it, right? You can't go tell people you don't like them in an unkind way. You can't punch (laughs) anybody. You can't do that. So a lot of where I would want us to be spending some time is, There's the emotion and there's the expression of the emotion. And really, all emotions are valuable. All emotions have a place. The only place we sometimes want to check somebody, whether it's a child or another adult, is how they're expressing that emotion. There are more and less respectful ways, kind ways to express feelings, even very dark and difficult feelings. That's really good. How do you think the path
1: forward out of this, I don't want to say dark time, but this has been the strangest couple of years. And I'm an optimistic person, so I I, I want to believe that we're going to get better on the other side. Do you think that's what's going to happen? And and what are some tools to help us sort of get to that?
2: I think it's okay to call it a dark time. I actually think that one of the challenges of the pandemic and how long it spanned is that it started to feel kind of normal, like we were supposed to be able to adapt to it. Yeah. And the reality is, like, this was historically horrible. And especially with children and adolescents, it's helpful to them to hear that because it helps put it in a context that they, because they are young, they cannot have. So I actually think it's okay to say to kids, you know, I'm about to be 52. I have said to my kids, I have never seen anything like this. This is the worst and the weirdest thing I have ever lived through. And they receive that with relief. Like, okay, it's not just me. Like, this is really bad. And then as we think about where we can go with that, how we can grow on that, I think that what we can say is, chances are you're not gonna see anything like this again. Like I hope this is the hardest thing you have to go through and now you know you can. You have lived through a historically horrible experience. And you have learned and grown and made friends. There is probably very little that life's going to throw at you after this that you are not going to be better prepared for. I love that.
0: You're listening to UNICEF Parenting Refreshed, a series of podcasts looking at different aspects of parenting in a world transformed by the COVID-19 pandemic. We're currently looking at parenting and mental health with author Bassi Ickby and clinical psychologist Dr. Lisa Damore, and we're going to talk about toxic stress, something that has become more prevalent in the light of the pandemic. Just a reminder that if you're affected or curious about any of the issues we're discussing, then please head to unicef.org forward slash parenting for support, advice, and more podcast episodes like this one.
1: Toxic stress is an issue we need to address with or without the pandemic. But in light of the pandemic, it has become all the more important to understand. I've also been hearing lots about toxic stress online. First of all, what is it?
2: And what role does it play in children's mental health? So when we think about toxic stress, there are a couple of forms that we can identify. One is when there's an overwhelming stressor, something that just is a terrible occurrence that really blows a child's coping out of the water and would really blow anybody's coping out of the water, whether it's a natural disaster or you know a frightening accident, something like that. The other kind of toxic stress we identify is when a child is in a situation that is chronically stressful. Their stress response is activated and we all have a stress response that gets us alert and aware of what's going on around us and it serves a purpose, but it shouldn't be activated all the time. And so we also see toxic stress when children are in circumstances where things do not feel safe, and they do not feel safe in an ongoing way. And so their stress response is activated, does not get much of a break. That, too, can change the architecture of the brain so that that stress response really doesn't quiet down when it's supposed to because it has been activated at such length. And children can be in ongoing stressful situations and not experience toxic stress. But that then depends on the buffering effect of a loving adult who helps them to not become overwhelmed and not have a chronic stress reaction happening.
1: What are, what are some signs of, of, of a child
2: being in a toxic, stressful situation? So we would see outward signs, like things in that child's environment that would require them to be on high alert all of the time. So maybe there's someone in the home who's not safe, or they are fearful of neglect or abuse. That would cause a child to just need to be maintaining kind of an air of vigilance, which for a little bit is okay, but over time is very, very taxing on the brain and also on the body. The other way we sometimes know that somebody has been in a toxic stress situation is they react very, very strongly to what are minor stressors that the way in which the brain has been affected by that toxic stress is that that part of the brain that generates a stress response becomes essentially highly reactive. So then something small happens that should generate a moderate stress response and a child who's experienced a lot of toxic stress may have a very powerful stress response in reaction to it.
1: Do you have any tips as to the best way for an adult to be present for a child going through toxic stress
2: situations? The language that we use in psychology is this idea of feeling with a child, really trying to put yourself in the shoes of a child and imagine what it would be like for them to go through something as challenging as they are. And when we do that, when we imagine their experience, we can then often very instinctively know what needs to happen, whether it's offering physical comfort or emotional comfort. And then of course, anything we can do to remove the child from a situation causing toxic stress, that would be essential if possible. But even if that's not possible, the more we can imagine the child's experience, use our empathy to do so, and then to use all of the resources that we have as adults to minimize and buffer how much they are impacted by that stress, all the better. And comfort is a very, very powerful thing for children when given by a loving adult.
1: And if the adult is also struggling, I feel like sometimes as parents, we forget that we need to figure out our emotions before we start um, the process of helping the child. But sometimes they have to work at the same time. Like, what is the best way to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and taking care of your child?
2: Right, Bessie, that is so hard, right? When the adult themselves is facing a toxic stress that they are also trying to protect their child from, that would be an incredibly hard thing for any adult to do. And part of what we can do to help with that is to name it for what it is. The act alone of saying... I am in a toxically stressful situation. This is very, very taxing for me. My child is in this situation with me. I am the one who can actually help to shield them from its impact. Naming it, describing it, putting it into words, that in and of itself has power to help organize us, focus us on what we need to do, and really think about putting the needs of that child exactly in the center while, of course, doing everything we can to make ourselves most able to protect our children when we need to.
1: Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Damore.
2: You bet. Bye-bye.
0: Subscribe wherever you're hearing this so that you know when the new episodes of Parenting Refreshed become available or head to the website for more information unicef.org forward slash parenting. Whilst you're there, you'll also find other episodes in the series, including discussions around parenting and technology. Try not to say no. Try to find a way for yes to be good for everyone. Education. They're interested in making sure that their children are able to discover that their child is resilient, that their child makes friends. And immunization. There are a lot of vaccines with good and new technologies nowadays that you can prevent several diseases in different ages, but for regret, there's no vaccine.